This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. Protesters are resorting to increasingly desperate tactics to try and draw attention to the climate crisis. This was not a quote-unquote harmless protest as we know it. What happened Tuesday has left me shaken, fearful and distressed. This month, three men and one woman were charged after allegedly targeting the home of the CEO of energy giant Woodside in WA. What happened at my home on Tuesday is an unacceptable escalation in activity by an extremist group which has absolutely no interest in engaging in respectful and constructive debate around Woodside's role in the transition towards a lower carbon world. But despite new anti-protest penalties being introduced by governments around Australia, climate protesters continue to go to extreme lengths. So what is driving them? And how far is too far? Today, the activists risking jail to fight for greater action on climate change. It's Thursday, the 10th of August. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Adam, some protesters were recently charged after they allegedly targeted the home of Woodside CEO Meg O'Neill. Tell me more about that. So the protesters are linked to Disrupt Burrup Hub, which is a group set up specifically to oppose fossil fuel development up in the north of WA. Adam Morton is Guardian Australia's climate and environment editor. The protesters say they had no intention of entering Meg O'Neill's home and that counter-terrorism police from the WA State Security Investigations Group were already there waiting for them within the grounds. Police haven't said anything publicly about that at this stage. And then through the day, three homes were raided and in total four people were arrested and they've been charged with conspiracy to commit an indictable offence. Some have been critical of these protesters because they targeted a specific individual, the Woodside CEO, at her personal address. What have been some of the reactions to this incident, Adam? There's been a really strong response and the WA Conservation Council said they did not think this was the right way to go. And we should be clear that Disrupt Borough Pub say they had no intention of going inside the house, but they still turned up at dawn, which would be confronting, I think, for anyone to have protesters turn up at their house. We have seen some really strong statements by Meg O'Neill She put out quite an emotional, enraged statement saying it was not a harmless protest and it was designed to threaten her and her family, including her daughter. The WA Premier, Roger Cook, described protesters as extremists. He said he was appalled by their actions. It's simply not good enough that people would seek to terrorise someone in their own home. And also had a crack at the ABC 
which had a reporting crew from Four Corners on site saying, by design or accidentally, they were complicit and should explain why they were there. They clearly had prior notice and understood that these people were going to the CEO's house. So I'll be seeking... So the ABC says a Four Corners team attended the protest to gather material for a potential report later this year. Just before the action, the team received the tip to go to an address. They said they had no knowledge what was there, that it was someone's house. They had no knowledge of what was going to happen there. And when they arrived, the police were already in attendance in numbers. The ABC say they in no way colluded with the activists that were outside Meg O'Neill's house. But Roger Cook, the WA Premier, had a broader criticism. Cook went on to say... What is it about people's obsession with Woodside? Woodside are one of those great companies that underpin our standard of living. He didn't understand what people's obsession with Woodside is, that the gas industry was essential for the state's transition. So, I mean, some people who are supportive of Disrupt Borough Pub would say they're kind of playing into the hands of opponents. And it is a divisive issue. And I think even the protesters would acknowledge that there's some risk that they would turn some people who might otherwise be supportive against them with this sort of action. And you mentioned that the activists were from a group called Disrupt Burrup Hub. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about exactly what they were protesting against? So the protesters are targeting Woodside. Woodside has a gas processing facility up on the Burrup Peninsula in the Pilbara in northern WA. And the company is one of the world's biggest oil and gas companies. And it's planning a significant extension of the life of that processing facility. It wants it to run for another 50 years, up to 2070 well beyond when scientists say fossil fuel infrastructure should be running. And to feed that processing plan, it wants to open up new gas reservoirs off the coast. We're talking about really large amounts of new fossil fuels that will be processed and then shipped overseas mostly and burnt in other countries and send potentially billions of tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere. And the protesters want to stop that. In addition to the climate change implications, there are cultural implications for the really significant Indigenous history on the Burrup Peninsula. This area is known as Murujuga to the traditional owners. It contains some of the world's largest and oldest collection of rock art. Some of this rock art's been damaged in the past by fossil fuel and other industrial companies, and there's concern that this damage will continue and get worse as the fossil fuel companies expand their operations. Mm. So fair to say that Woodside's copped a fair bit of criticism over this project over a significant period of time. In fact, it says that there have actually been protests against its activities that have been getting more and more serious and increasing in number in a bid to intimidate the company. Are they right? Is this part of a broader movement that we're seeing from climate activists? I mean, they're definitely being targeted and we've seen a number of protests in recent months of things have escalated mostly from this group, Disrupt Borough Pub, but not exclusively. Perhaps in the most aggravating case for the company prior to last week, a campaigner effectively led to the evacuation of Woodside's corporate headquarters in Perth by using a stench gas to simulate a hoax gas leak and thousands of workers were evacuated and work was stopped for the day and the company is suing the protester over that. So this has been building for a time. But I would say that there's been a real crackdown and a real unified voice between WA police, 
WA parliamentarians, particularly the Labor government, obviously, which has an overwhelming majority, pretty much runs parliament on its own in WA with very few opposition members and the company itself. And if those three groups can be intimidated by a handful of protesters, then that seems somewhat out of proportion, I would have thought. Throughout history, there have always been some environmental protesters who are willing to put their own safety on the line and to draw great attention to their cause. So how extreme or different are the kinds of protests that we're seeing really in light of that? There's definitely been an escalation of late, but the general underlying push is it's based on the idea that there's clear evidence that there's wrongdoing here, that we're not getting governments and companies to act on the evidence or to do what they say they'll do. And so people take to the streets and feel driven to protest action. And we're seeing a real escalation of that across the globe, I think, and certainly in Australia on climate change over what they would say, with some justification, is a scientific argument around what fossil fuel expansion at this stage would do. Just last week, a day or two after the protest at Meg O'Neill's house, we saw Greenpeace protesters in the UK scale to the roof of British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's Yorkshire mansion, one of his homes. Protesters have covered Rishi Sunak's £2 million mansion in black cloth. They made their way up uh, onto the roof of uh, this uh, this house. The Prime Minister, of course, not here. He's on holiday, as he, as he told the country yesterday in, in, uh, in California, but armed with uh, ropes and ladders and clearly equipped for climbing. They made their way up onto the, uh, the, the roof of this property. In protest about his support of a fairly significant oil expansion in the UK, In Australia, we have seen protests in a range of states, most notably perhaps in June. Over a week, the group Blockade Australia held protests at major ports at three different sites up the eastern seaboard, blocking traffic, blocking trains, trying to basically block the movement of fossil fuels. So it feels like all this is coming at once, and to some extent it is. But the number of people who are actually doing it isn't particularly huge. They are just taking strategic steps to try to get attention to an issue that they feel is incredibly urgent and they're not seeing urgency from our leaders on it. I mean, you've spoken to some of the protesters involved in some of these more recent disruptive major protests. Who are they and what did you learn from them about what they're motivated by? As always happens, when there is a collection of people who feel this level of desperation, and in a lot of cases it really is desperation, we've seen sort of a structure form, you know, new elements of the climate movement spring up in recent years that are really dedicated to this sort of disruptive direct action. Extinction Rebellion was, I guess, the first group that really made a name for itself. They come from a range of walks of life. There are students, the sort of people that you might typically associate with environmental activism, but I've also spoken with people who work in community jobs, community welfare. And then one of the protesters I spoke to is a 50-year-old from Melbourne, Brad Homewood, who's with the group Blockade Australia, and he's a truck driver when he's not a climate activist. Um, So I climbed up a nine-metre monopole yesterday in uh, Appleton Dock Way at uh, the Port of Melbourne. I stayed up there for a bit over two hours. uh, I imagine he'd uh, list them both as jobs and in the opposite order of importance. And he made the news in June for gluing himself to a pole at Melbourne's Appleton Dock, basically to stop trade. Uh, glued on to the pole when emergency services tried to get me down. They had to, you know, come back up and 
bring some acetone to get me down. What did you uh, glue? Which part of you did you glue to the pole? I glued my left hand because I was still live streaming with my right hand. So Right. Okay. And his goal is, I mean, one that some would describe as extreme. Others would say that it's what's necessary based on the evidence. But he, he says the problem driving the climate crisis is our whole economic model. Yeah, and it's this economic system that is unsustainable. So right. as far as Blockade Australia is concerned, we've got to hit the system where it hurts and where it's going to get the most attention. Right. And we know we know the political class and the ruling class are definitely going to take notice when you hit them where, where it hurts. So and the Blockade goals Australia. of Blockade Australia basically are to disrupt that model, which is why they set out to disrupt ports in Melbourne, Newcastle and Brisbane. We're doing whatever it takes to raise the alarm and unfortunately that takes disruption and we're we're targeting the system because not enough of the climate movement is talking about the system as the core of the problem. There's, there's too much talk about, oh, yeah, we'll just transition to renewables and all this nonsense about net zero and everything will be okay and we can just go on with our lives. But the reality is that's not going to cut it. Next, are disruptive climate protests actually working? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So, Adam, in recent years, we've seen climate activists blocking peak hour traffic on the Harbour Bridge in Sydney and also outside Flinders Street Station in Melbourne, frustrating a lot of commuters. So do these increasingly disruptive tactics run the risk of actually putting people off rather than inviting them to join in and push for greater climate action? Obviously, that's a risk. And it's really hard to measure the extent to which that happens. Some sort of knee-jerk polls after these sort of protests often suggest a majority of people don't like them. And that might be true. That sort of blowback can have some impact. We've seen Extinction Rebellion in the UK step back from these sorts of disruptive protests in recent months because they felt it was counterproductive. But there's also research that shows that these actions can be meaningful in achieving what the activists want to achieve, that they can be more meaningful than just getting media coverage and certainly more meaningful than some sort of violent action, which is not what we're talking about here. It was interesting, I thought, that the group just stop oil in the UK said there are two steps to civil resistance. The first is disruption, the sort of thing we're talking about, and the next is dialogue. And their attitude is that these sorts of tactics are uncomfortable for everybody, but that's how social change works. Adam, what about the people that you've spoken to here, like Brad, who are risking higher penalties for protesting? Do they feel like they're making an impact? I'm not sure how you measure whether they're having an impact, but I think that 
they would say that they feel the only option is to keep going. I'm prepared to go to prison. If that's what it takes to highlight what a draconian anti-democratic law that is and also draw more attention to the climate crisis, if I can do that strategically, um, I'm willing to do some time, yeah. Yeah. So, Adam, we've talked on this pod before about New South Wales's tougher anti-protest penalties, but since that time, many other states and territories have also followed suit. Are these kinds of laws working to deter climate protesters? It's hard to measure, but if the goal is to shut down protest altogether, clearly not, or we wouldn't be talking about it. But there has been a really significant expansion of penalties across jurisdictions in Australia. This morning, Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk is pushing for tough new laws to be fast-tracked through Parliament to put protesters who use lock-on devices behind bars for up to two years. She's also ruled out... uh, Declaring a climate emergency. So in New South Wales, now there are fines of up to $22,000 and jail penalties of up to two years for some protest actions. In South Australia, the parliament rushed through similar laws in 22 hours in response to a protest recently, boosting the potential fines up to $50,000. South Australia's upper house has just passed laws to significantly increase penalties for people who engage in seriously disruptive protests. MPs spent all night debating the law. In WA, we've seen an escalation in surveillance and raids on homes for what are traditionally minor offences, and we've talked a bit about that. And there are anti-protest laws that have been introduced in Victoria and Tasmania targeting protesters that are trying to stop logging of native forests. So I don't think anyone would look around and say the protests have stopped because of any of these laws, though. In a sense, it just raises the stakes of the conflict, I think. And we're not yet at a stage where a lot of these cases have gone through courts and we're seeing people receive the sort of heavy penalties they might. There are some examples where people have been jailed. For example, in Tasmania, a vet, Colette Harmson, who's repeatedly protested against logging, is currently serving a three-month jail term. But mostly, the people who have been charged are still awaiting their day in court. And I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion about how much authorities want to push through with that and how people respond. And ultimately, whether they think climate change is an emergency that justifies this sort of extreme action will decide where people land. So, Adam, these harsh penalties, they also have implications for the right to protest more generally, right? Absolutely. I mean, there is a broader democratic principle here, right? These laws are definitely targeted at climate and environmental protesters. I mean, they differ from state to state. In some cases, they could have broader application. But even if they don't, civil liberty groups would say that everybody should be concerned about constraints on the right to protest, which is a fundamental part of our democracy. The line we see routinely from politicians is, we respect the right to protest, but, and then a bunch of words that basically say, as long as you protest in the way that we're comfortable with. Well, that's not how protest works. That's not how protest has worked historically. And once governments start cracking down on that right, we don't know where it'll end. I mean, I think it is worth noting that there are obviously different views within the community and certainly even within the climate movement about some of the actions that are taken here. But there is a definitely a an across-the-board agreement that at the moment we're seeing laws that are really giving fossil fuel companies and to some extent police what they want and parliamentarians erring on the side of supporting major corporations 
over the right to protest. And, you know, a lot of people would think that's a reason for concern. It's a really divisive issue, clearly. But we know that the impact of climate change is now being felt more and more keenly. And yet, as you say, Adam, these disruptive protests are really only being held by a relatively small number of people in the community. So why do you think the anger and desperation of these people hasn't yet spread to broader parts of the community in response to climate action? I'm potentially getting away from your question here, but I think the evidence, just logic tells us that there are going to be more and more people who are drawn to this. It's not going to be a majority of the population plainly. And it's very hard to know how people feel about it, especially with, you know, we've got rising cost of living. We've got a whole bunch of everyday concerns that people are facing. But people are also clearly very aware that we are in a, are seeing across the globe now, the sort of long held projections by climate scientists being reflected in massive heat waves across the Northern Hemisphere historic wildfires on a number of continents, South America having extraordinary temperatures for what is the winter there, the oceans warming in a way that is well off the charts. Protests are never about getting a majority of people on the streets. It's really the extent to which they are capturing a public mood. And I think it's very hard to say the extent to which people support what Disrupt Borough Pub are doing. But I do think there's plenty of evidence that people are increasingly concerned about the climate crisis see the obvious disconnect between opening up new fossil fuel projects at a time in which all the evidence says we shouldn't be doing that. And so look back at the history of protest, whether it's for women's rights, civil rights, better environmental protection. How do we look back on those now? The protesters are nearly always on the right side of history. We know the scale of the evidence on the climate change. Why do we think this will be different? I mean, I think the only logical conclusion is that we're going to see an escalation in these protests over time, no matter what penalties are brought in, because the people who are acting feel this is an emergency and they're not going to be deterred in at least some cases by the risk of greater fines or some time in jail. That was Adam Morton. He's the climate and environment editor for Guardian Australia. You can read all of Adam's reporting on the climate crisis on theguardian.com. You can also check out his recent feature on anti-protest laws. It's called Whatever It Takes, the activists who risk prison to shatter Australia's climate complacency. We'll post a link to that on the Full Story website. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Miles Herbert and myself. Sound design and mixing by James Milsom. The executive producer was Hannah Parks. I'm Jane Lee and Gabrielle Jackson will bring you the newsroom edition of Full Story tomorrow. Catch you then. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.